Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. Everybody, welcome back to Podcast Winterfell. It is episode 293 of the podcast. This week is a, a Song of Ice and Fire exclusive podcast where we are covering the novella The Princess and the Queen, which I believe first appeared in the anthology Dangerous Women. And you can find it there. Uh, I was able to get that pretty cheaply on uh, Kindle, if that's uh, the way you want to consume that. I don't know if there's an audio version of that or not, but we'll talk to our panelists here in a few minutes, see if we can find out. In the meantime, my name is Matt Murdock. I am from PodcastWinterfell.com. It's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You can find podcatcher links. You can find uh, social media and contact links. And you can also find... By the time you hear this podcast, the results of our contest as to who won the two copies of the Season 6 official soundtrack. Anybody who had left me a written review on whatever podcast app that they use were thrown into the hat for a drawing, uh, which I videotaped and uh, published on October 7th at the website. You can find it in that contest tab to see if you are a winner, and that way... Uh, contact me if you are, so that I know what format you want your soundtrack in, and of course, um, how to get it to you. So, uh, very much. In the meantime, two people who were included last minute into the contest uh, that I had down were Nikki Loves Jon Snow in the US iTunes Store and Priscilla in the Stitcher Store. Thank you so much uh, for your taking the time to write a review. And good luck to everyone who had done so. Anybody who left a review in the past was entered, so even my panelists uh, that are coming up here who have left reviews before were in the contest. So maybe they won. I don't know, because we're pre-recording this before I actually do the drawing. At any rate, I uh, am going to be gone, which is why I'm doing a lot of pre-recording these days. I am going to be gone for a full month, basically, um, so uh, that means that our 300th episode uh, special, our 300th numbered episode special, we'll be pre-recording that as well on October 17, 2016 at 10 p.m. Eastern. And I want both TV-only people and A Song of Ice and Fire people to call in if you wish with anything you want to talk about with me and maybe a few select special panelists, guests, uh, about uh, you know whatever's bothering you or whatever you're excited about regarding the TV show or whatever's bothering you or whatever you're excited about regarding the books, stuff that the TV show doesn't cover. Um, I will keep those audiences segregated. Like I'll take all of the TV callers first so that they can leave then if they don't want to hear any of the book stuff. Um, and I'll encourage any book people, I guess, to show up later if they don't want to know anything about the TV stuff. Kind of in a weird spot now where everybody gets spoiled one way or another. Um, but it's real easy. You just participate by calling in on October 17th at 10 p.m. Eastern, 724-444-7444. Then you dial 11884 and the pound sign. 
And then if you're asked for a personal identification number or PIN, just dial 1 in the pound sign and you'll be added to the call. Again, you can talk to me about any subject that you wish. Just don't intermix the book and the TV stuff. If you want to talk about TV and then also talk about the books, um, I'll, call, I'll bring you back later on in the show to talk about the books. Hey, have I talked enough about that? Well, I guess suppose so, but I will be gone for the next month, and I thought I'd reach out to all you listeners if you want to meet up with me somewhere while I'm on my touring adventures. October 25th through November 7th, I'll be at Chicago's in Key West, Florida um, during that time every night of the week. Um, on November 11th, we'll be at Bill's Tiki Bar in Clearwater, Florida. On November 13th, Capital Oyster Bar in Montgomery, Alabama. November 14th, at the Beaches Historic Society in Jacksonville, Florida. November 17th, Rusty Nail in Wilmington, North Carolina. November 18th and 19th at Madam's Organ in Washington, D.C. November 20th at Riley J's in Geneva, New York. There are also some other private events in there. I get back about a day before Thanksgiving, but there are some private events in there on some of those dates that seem like they're open where we're actually playing too. So um, you just have to hope that you were in the town that we're playing in or at the part of the event that we're part of for those. But uh, come out and see me. Shake my hand or punch me in the face because you don't like the podcast. Either way, I'm happy to meet you. Um, just like I, I hope someday that I can actually get to uh, out to California where I can meet my first guest. That's Bubba from the Double P Podcast Network, who are they're doing all kinds of podcasts right now about the strain, about Ash versus the Evil Dead. Um, he's recently appeared on my Sorkin cast in regards to the newsroom. So uh, Bubba's a busy guy. Thanks for taking the time. How are you? Matt, you know, we're pre-recording this, and you said you don't know if we won the prize or not. So just in case I did win, I'd like to thank my family my fans, my support, my Twitter followers. As I say this, I currently don't have 800 Twitter followers. I have 799. So for that person who follows me to be my 800th Twitter follower, at Fit and Trim, that's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M, I want to thank you the most for this wonderful prize I won from Matt. And, of course, the best prize of all is appearing on Podcast Winterfell. Thank you, Matt. How you doing? I'm great, buddy. It's good to talk to you again. Um, recently, you guys put out a, a Joffrey of Podcasts episode, a special one with a, with a very special POV chapter. You want to tell people about that just a little bit? Right. Please go to iTunes and download, subscribe to the Joffrey of Podcasts, the only podcast with a special focus on His Grace, King Joffrey. First of his name, first in your heart. And uh, we went back and covered... Uh, a Maester Picel POV chapter from A Clash of Kings, which touches on His Grace King Joffrey. We did it in honor of Maester Picel dying in the TV show, spoiler alert, of season five. And so uh, really excited. Want people to who really love the books are really going to enjoy reading that wonderful chapter from George R. R. Martin. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us tonight to talk about The Princess and the Queen and... We have our own queen here with us, or is she the princess? I'm not sure which, but we have Susan with us. Welcome back. Thank you, Matt. Uh, very pleased to be here. Did you just say one of your appearances is going to be in Clearwater, Florida? Yes, Bill's Tiki oh, Bar. My hometown. my hometown. I moved away from there just this last year, so if I could have been last year, I could have, could have met you there. But uh, but you'll you'll enjoy it. It's a beautiful, beautiful location in Florida. Right on. Now, is that anywhere near St. Petersburg? I'm trying to think. 
Yes, it is. It's just it's in the same county. Yeah, Pinellas County. It's a it's a peninsula that uh, comes out off of uh, Tampa Bay and uh, has some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. Excellent. I'll be looking forward to that again, uh, or then. And uh, again, welcome back to you uh, for for joining us. Uh, this is your third uh, A Song of Ice and Fire appearance in a row with us. I appreciate you taking the time to do so about the Princess and the Queen. And guys, I guess what I want to do, for, I guess first what I ought to do is just kind of give a brief summary of what this novella is about. As the named heir to the Iron Throne... Rhaenyra receives news of her father's death. The Dowager Queen, Alicent, has already installed her own son, Aegon II, on the throne, causing a civil war between the Greens and the Blacks of the Targaryen lines, better known as the Dance of Dragons, a war that ultimately brings an end to the era of dragons during the Targaryen dynasty. And with that, why don't we go, uh, first of all, to you, Susan, um, I don't want to talk, I guess what I want to do is just kind of get some general uh, thoughts before we get into any kind of specifics, but you uh, and I talked before we started recording about how uh, different this read is as compared to, say, the Duncan Oig novellas or other short stories that we've uh, had George do before. Sure, yes. I mean, this this is written very much in the style of uh, history. So uh, Martin is telling the story from the viewpoint that uh, Archmas- Archmaster Gildane has written this, and uh, so it's a recounting of, of this history by him. And Archmaster Gildane, that name also comes up in A World of Ice and Fire, where um, there are uh, two, there's Master Yandel is the main one who who uh, is the author of that book, but he's often quoting Archmaster Geldane. And what I had found out about that is the uh, two people that co-wrote that book with uh, Martin, uh, when Master Yandel's being uh, quoted, it's, it's kind of material that they helped put together. But when they're directly quoting Archmaster Geldane, that's supposed to be like the voice of Martin. So... This is coming, when you hear that, Archmaster Gildane is kind of like code for the voice of Martin. Okay, excellent. Uh, One of the things that struck me about it was the lack of the POV. Like you said, it was much more of a history thing. That made it a little bit harder for me to feel anything for any of these characters. Did you come across similar problems, or did you not look at it in that way? Um. Yeah, I can. Yes, it does make it a little harder for you to uh, associate with anyone directly because of, of the way it is being told, and it, it does make it a little bit harder to read, frankly, um, being together. This so uh, you know, I, I'd say that this is, isn't something for everybody. You know, people who are fans of uh, a Song of Ice and Fire, it, you have to kind of decide whether you really like to get into the nitty-gritty, you know, how much you enjoy the history and the backstory of it all. If you do, then I think this can add a lot to it. For me, it's something that I've had to go over several times to kind of really understand it well. And frankly, I've understand it better by some other materials that I've read as well, such as the, the Rogue Prince 
that came out afterwards but is related to this, being mm-hmm. that that one is specifically about uh, uh, Damon Targaryen and uh, his story, and uh, he is the second husband of this uh, Queen Brynera here. And when it, that particular story tells a lot of the incidents that lead up to this. Excellent. Well, let's move, go turn back to you, Baba, and uh, your podcast actually did a review of this story um, I, it, shortly around the time that uh, it came out, or, or maybe a little bit after, but uh, I distinctly remember you not having very much good to say about it in, in your podcast, uh, in, the, uh, in the Joffrey of Podcasts. So um, what is it that was hit and miss for you most in terms of this book? Well, that's right, Matt. Now, some people, not me, some people have almost called it like not so much a short story or, or a novella as it's meant to be. Some critics have called this the equivalent of a never-ending Wikipedia page and <laughs> because, you know, you don't get too much flavor. It is his, it's history without any flavor, history without knowing the characters so much. I do not hate this story in any sort of way. The way I like to describe it is I call it a good to great story told poorly from my reader's perspective. I know some people don't mind the fact that it is history and it is gray and you really can't get in anybody's mind just like when you read a history book. Most history books don't suddenly, you know, don't suddenly have things like then General Washington realized if I cross the Delaware, I've got him. Spoiler alert for the American Revolution. But uh, anyway, I, yeah, I just had trouble. It's it's it was a very difficult read. On reflection, there's so many moments in it, so many battles, so many col- colorful characters like uh, Cheese, for example, or uh, Nettles. But that said, it is the kind of thing where I think I've gone back and read uh, many of the proper novels of The Song of Ice and Fire multiple times. This is one I just couldn't read twice, certainly the whole way through. I feel like you would go back to maybe remember a detail as opposed to, boy, this has been a great story, uh, story time experience. But that's just me. Hopefully the listeners don't agree. Excellent. Well, more entitled to your opinion. I will say that this one was probably one of the tougher reads for me as well. And again, I think it was more because I didn't have a singular character that I could identify with. On the other hand, um, maybe what I can appreciate about this is the fact that I don't have to worry about whether um, the account itself is as unreliable since it comes from you know a maester who is, is writing down history uh, as opposed to even though some parts of history may be lost. Again, historians disagree on all kinds of events uh, in, in different times of our own history. So uh, you could still say, is this a reliable narration or not? But because there is no specific POV that we're pinned to, we don't have to worry specifically whether anything that we're seeing is true, right? Or if it's just a perception or if that's the case. Um, now, Matt, Matt, can I go into that? And you, you wisely brought up, you know, there's no POV and the thing about the characters. I would say, and I, I don't know if this is true for you, I would say a lot of people 
they they have characters they really like. Say say for example Arya, and there is the big thrill of oh no Arya's in trouble or whew, Arya succeeded. You know those kind of highs and lows, emotional highs and lows a reader can get. I would wonder if, and this is admittedly his prerogative to write the story he wants. I would wonder if readers like myself didn't miss that. You know, there's when you read the Princess and the Queen, at least for me it kind of didn't matter who lived or who died or who succeeded because there were very few characters that I would get emotionally tied to. I can totally understand that. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons why I found this read harder as well. Susan, how about you? Did you find a particular character that you wanted to root for, even though we didn't have the added benefit of being in their head? Um, I don't know that I would say root for, but, I did find that I found some of the characters more interesting and that the story provided me more details about them that I, I could just find that they were, you know, interesting people who, you know, played some role in this larger story. And I like the fact that uh, after reading this, then different references in the larger story, when I go back to it, things make a little more sense when they reference the Dance of Dragons or different people or characters from their history or background that might be from this time. Now I know a little bit more about who that is. It isn't just some random thing being referenced. I, I've got some, some uh, uh, context for that. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Um, any other general thoughts about this before we dive into any specifics, guys? Well, yeah. well Matt... Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this an animated feature on the Game of Thrones Season 5 Blu-ray? They cover a lot of these events in what is known as a Dance of the Dragons. And I think people may have seen it, uh, this story or elements of this story told uh, on YouTube or on their Blu-ray sets. Uh, Yes, it was, in fact. And and, uh, Susan and I were just talking about before the recording, uh, I was talking about how, and maybe even with you before the recording, the uh, the, the dragon fight over the God's Eye is, is a big part of that video feature. Um, and, um, and that was probably the part that was most compelling to me because I could actually see it in my mind's eye as I was reading it better. Cool. Yes, that that is actually it's a twenty minute video, and yes, you can find it on YouTube, and and it came out on the Blu-ray. And I think one of the things I think they did a really nice job with that. They did cover you know pretty much all the highlights of events that take place in the story, and it's also voiced by a number of the actors that have been in the the uh, the series. You've got uh, Shireen and the series King Robert, Catelyn. Uh, Oberyn and Joffrey all play, uh, you know, and, and it's, what's interesting is that when they uh, are telling their part of the story, they add some of the flavor of their character and how their character would kind of uh, think about these incidents as they were explaining them. Interesting. Very cool. Did you have, a, did you have another general thought, Susan? I thought you started when Bubba did too. Uh, well, I, I did. I wanted to mention that video because I think that's a, a nice way. Uh, like I said, to, for me to understand this story really well, it is, um, and, and I do. I like to get more and more information about the world. 
Uh, but because of the way this is written, like you said, it's not the easiest read that some of the ancillary materials in, that relate to this in other ways, like I said, the rose print pieces that, of it that are in the world of ice and fire, that video, help you understand the story even better. Uh, and also, you uh, mentioned something about was there an audio version of this, and I just wanted to mention that uh, yes, there is, and that it is the actor Ian Glenn who uh, uh, who voices it. So it's uh, very very nice to listen to. Ah, uh, our good old friend, the old perv Jorah, talks about the yes. Dance of Dragons. He would be an authority. He knows everything about Targaryens now, doesn't he? Uh, <laughs> well, let's let's get into into some specifics. Uh, I, I'm just going to kind of bounce around. We we don't have to stay within the the you know the context of of going chronologically through the story. Just whatever hits you most, or or bothered you most, or whatever about the story and and the information that you gleaned from it. Bubba, why don't I start with you? Is there any particular point that uh, you wanted uh, specifically to talk about that did raise your eyebrows or anything like that? Well, I think one thing many of us fans of this world of Westeros and uh, Song of Ice and Fire can do is when you analyze things in the proper novels, it's like, oh, was this the right move or was this the right move from the various characters? And I think the, the subtitle of the story and the subtitle, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is Or the Blacks and the Greens. And just like a lot of times you'll, in the proper novel, you'll say, oh, for example, was Jon Snow smart to do this or should he have done that and various things? The subtitle itself of this novella, to me, raises the question in the readers that the readers should start thinking about, you know, are you team Blacks or are you team Greens? Or are they both just kind of terrible because it's once again all about fighting for power and nobody ever thinks about the little guy. I think for me when I read this that while I disagreed with kind of the the sketchy nature that the Greens kind of took the throne and that it, it you know this second queen setting it up so her son gets the throne I, I didn't like that at all. Generally I did find myself you know as much as I could because it, the text is what it is, rooting for the Greens and thinking they were, dare I say it, more noble, which is a very minor bar to cross, than the blacks were. So I was team green. I don't know if anybody else wants to jump in and say how they felt about the two sides. I will say this. Um, I, For me, um, they had precedent and philosophy in terms of installing Aegon II in, in terms of male heir over female heir, which is, of course, a, a prospect that we, us in a modern age just um, pretty much totally dislike. It, it's like, um, and, and even the television show is starting to go like, well, should Sansa be the actual heir to Winterfell now, or, or should it be Bran if he returns, or, you know, those kinds of questions. Um, I, I did feel like that as in terms of waging war, the greens were more quote unquote honorable um, than the blacks. Um, but uh, also I did kind of liken uh, Rhaenyra to uh, almost kind of of Danny, you know, fire and blood conquer, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because I, I've grown to like Danny better 
uh, the more I read her rather than less, uh, which I think has happened to a lot of people. But I don't know. Susan, you you probably um, are the biggest Danny supporter among all of us. Did you find <laughs> any more Danny in any of these fam- in, in in either side than the other? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, yeah. I you probably I say you probably would associate her more with the blacks uh, for a number of reasons, uh, especially because she is a, you know, she's a woman like this uh, Queen Rhaenyra. Uh, and what I one of the things I think is ironic about the way this is uh, set up is the fact that that the king who dies in the beginning, this this uh, King uh, Viserys, uh, the first Viserys. Uh, he basically the only reason that he was on the throne was because there had been this council of 101 that had been called because uh, that King Jaehaerys, the one who was who had like reigned for the longest of any of the Targaryen kings and was really well thought of for all the things he do, he had done. He and his wife had so many heirs, but their first two sons died. And the eldest had a daughter, and the second one had a son. And uh, so it was a matter of them trying to figure out how they were going to go about the succession. And this council helped to decide that it would actually go to the son of the second son rather than the daughter of the first because they wanted to follow that male line. Uh, And so that's why this Viserys got on the throne. But then while he's on the throne, he's married twice, and with the first wife, he only has this daughter, Rhaenyra, and didn't look like he was going to have any sons. So he made the uh, different people in the realm uh, swear that they would uphold her as his heir. Then he is remarried, ends up having three sons and a daughter with a second wife, and would never turn over the fact of having this, you know, his daughter from his first wife as his heir. But yet he was only on the throne because of the fact that they had already decided that we're going to, you know, stick to this male lineage thing. So I think that's, you know, part of the beginning of, you know, he kind of set up the problems in the first place. Mm. Yeah, and there's a there is an irony in that for sure. Absolutely. Were you more black or green in this particular story? I, I think I was more black. Uh, you know, truly, I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between the two. Um, when it comes down to it, and I think that you know, in the end, the Targaryens by the civil war did nothing other than harm themselves, uh, get diminish. You know, they lost almost all of the dragons. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that I also kind of question at that is, you know, they talk in the story about how kind of magic went out of the world. And we have these inferences of are the dragons helping to bring back the magic or what? Makes me wonder if it was just the timing that the rest of the dragons kind of died out after this war because of uh, magic was going out of the world, or was it because of the fact that the Targaryens just kind of torn themselves apart here, and and then that was part of the result of it? That's a very interesting question. What do you think, Bubba? Uh, I think it it doesn't track clean if you go across all kind of the media. It doesn't track clean that once the dragons were dead, there wasn't any magic. There was still some magic. Obviously, uh, the others, the White Walkers to the north, show 
signs of magic being uh, still existing when the dragons are dead. The wall, which we're told has magic properties, uh, mm-hmm. still worked, even though the dragons were dead. So it doesn't track clean. It, it's almost like the dragons are an amplifier of possibly magic that was out there. I guess it's the only thing you might say track clean. Right. That's very interesting. Very interesting, guys. Um, Susan, is there a particular point uh, about this particular novella that you would like to talk about? Hmm. Um, well, I think, uh, you know, you, you brought up that, uh, that fight over the God's eye that was between, um, this Prince Damon and Prince um, Amon. And um, they're both really interesting characters. The Prince Damon, uh, who is the second husband of this Queen Rhaenyra, was actually the younger brother of her father. And um, he uh, uh, was just a really colorful character that I think that the rogue uh, prince, you know, people ought to read that, they can get all details of him there. But then this Prince Aemon, uh, Prince Aemon's one eye, he has one eye because um, as a young uh, child, he was wanting to mount a dragon, and uh, he got onto uh, Vagar, the, um, which I guess that was Visenya's dragon. Uh, he wanted to go on Dragon Rider on this great big huge old dragon, and the sons of Rhaenyra, uh, her first three sons, who are um, kind of question their their fatherhood is kind of, their fathering is kind of questionable, um, but um, they had a, a scuffle uh, with him over him trying to mount Vagar, and that's how he lost that eye. So there was already a lot of bad blood between these two sides before this story even started. But I think that uh, Aemon's this interesting character. Uh, uh, Prince Aemon One Eye, and how you know in the beginning he has this big battle uh, with the uh, second son of Queen, of Queen Rhaenyra, who has been sent to Storm's End. Because when they start when they start the story out, they talk about how you know at first they were trying to you know avoid you know going into the warfare right away. They were trying to get different lords behind them and so forth. So. Um, they had both sent envoys to uh, to Storm's End, and um, the Greens had sent uh, this Aemon One Eye, and the Blacks sent the second son of Rhaenyra, and uh, he was obviously uh, younger and on a much younger dragon. And when he went down there to uh, try to get the uh, current Baratheons. Uh, Behind him, he encountered Aemon, and then they had this big battle out over the water that killed him. And so that was, you know, one of the first major deaths in this. And because of that, then you have uh, Prince Darren or Damon. <laughs> get get all mixed up here. That uh, uh, let me say, Susan, I'm going to interrupt for just a second, but. This stumbling over names is one of the reasons why, I'll be honest, this is such a hard read. You've got all right. these people that trying to explain how they're related. It's complex. It is. It definitely is. Definitely. So, yeah. So because of the death of the, the you know, son of Prince Rhaenyra, then uh, Damon sends, the, sends this uh, revenge plot into place. And he had been uh, the head of the gold cloaks. In fact, 
it was under him that they had actually gotten the name Gold Cloak because he had, uh, uh, at the time that he was there, the head of their, uh, uh, of them, he had given them those to wear. So, um, but he had all sorts of really uh, questionable contacts in the city, and he got these uh, mm. these horrible characters, these uh, that uh, blood and cheese, to go in and do the this revenge. They're like a son for a son. They've got to take out another son. So he sent these guys in that obviously knew some of those hidden tunnels from King Magar, and uh, they went into the hand tower and waited for the queen to bring her children to say goodnight to their grandmother and uh, then took the queen hostage with her three young children. She had two sons and a daughter and made her decide, well, which one of these sons do you want killed? I mean, that that's just a horrible scenario there. Yeah. But, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And then after she is forced to choose, they don't kill the one she chooses. Right. Um, yeah. But that does bring me to, to Blood and Cheese, Bubba, and I know that you had mentioned earlier that uh, there were some colorful characters that you actually kind of enjoyed reading, uh, if you enjoyed reading anything at all. And I remember you mentioning that Cheese was one of them. Um, obviously, the tunnels uh, help reinforce. I love the, the parallel of, of Tyrion wandering through the tunnels and ending up in the chamber of the Hand and finding Shay and all of that, and these guys obviously knowing it. I also wonder if, if uh, the tunnel that they used to actually get in was the one that, that Tyrion used to get outside to fight Stannis in Clash. I don't know. There's probably not a parallel there, but I just like putting those kind of parallels together. No, but, there, there could be, Matt. Really? You think? Yeah, I think there could be. And I just want to talk about not only blood and cheese, but about some of the stuff Susan was just talking about right then. And so this story... This is why I keep saying it's a good story, possibly a great story. I just wish it had been told better. Because think about the things that we've already, in the last just couple of minutes, described. Dragons fighting dragons. I mean, heck yeah, this is something that maybe you don't expect. We might not, we might not see that in the, in the upcoming novels. We certainly haven't seen it in any of the first five. And yet here we're getting to experience. You're talking about this great slash horrific Attack by blood and cheese, which is really, I mean, this is just a new low type stuff, so evil. But it is kind of the stuff that will grab you because it is action. It is things happening. It's it's horrific. It's many red weddings, dare I say it, what blood and cheese do. So, yeah, I, I, there's a lot of great action in this story. It's a good story. It's just sometimes maybe you're not getting... From the way it's told, from the history perspective it's told, maybe you're not getting it. Now, Blood and Cheese, What? I mean, this is just stone cold. And it was the fact that Blood and Cheese, I mean, once again, I don't like what they did. I like them because they're colorful characters. And unlike Darian and Damon and all these names which are hard to pronounce, Blood and Cheese, I'm like, oh, easy, simple. Okay, I get it. And what they did was so terrible. That was one of the things that pushed me to be pro-green. Go Greens! Vote Jill Stein. <laughs> and so, uh, anyway, yeah, what they do about making a mother, giving a mother, uh, quote-unquote, Sophie's choice about which one lives, and then doing the opposite, that reflects back to maybe an episode we recently saw in season six of the television show where uh, Grey Worm's like, okay, listen, one of you slave masters is going to have to die. You tell me which one. They push somebody down, and then he kills the others. So 
uh, those moments keep echoing through the stories and in some ways, even the TV show. In in the other respect, uh, and this is a question, Bubba, I know you like to do math, but I couldn't quite figure it out. Um, Evidently, um, the prince's go between between himself and blood and cheese is some guy who is pale or whatever. I couldn't figure out who that if that was somebody that we knew in the story, though. If it was somebody we knew in the story, I promise you they would have a difficult name to pronounce. Not blood and cheese. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I apologize. I couldn't figure that out either. Okay. Susan, did you come up with any ideas? Because the only other pale person that I could see described that way was Lord Swift himself, right? The Master of Whisper- Whispers? Yeah, I, I don't know. Actually, mentioning right now, so I'm going to have to look at that a little more. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I just that was I remember writing down in my note, who is this go between uh, between, uh, you know, Damon and and blood and cheese. So I I was really I was kind of interesting about that. Going back to, though, why blood and cheese were put into action. I mean, um, the the prince that came to Storm's End along with uh, uh, Rhaenyra's son who came to Storm's End. um, don't you kind of feel like the black started it by killing him? I would I would say that's possible, but that was a fair fight. Yes, yes, he was he he was ambushed, but he was riding a dragon. You know, it wasn't like this that's was true. an innocent kid. This was somebody on a dragon, and sure enough, yes, he was attacked by somebody with a bigger dragon, and you know, he was kind of attacked in the middle of a storm. So it, the ambush part is relatively true. I would, in my own mind, you know, obviously everybody has their own perspective in my own mind. That feels more like he had a fighting chance. You know, he was on a dragon. He maybe could have escaped. Maybe he could have used the storm to escape where these are just straight up innocent kids and what was done to them. You know, these kids didn't have a chance. Yeah. It was very echoing to me of, uh, what, uh, the mountain, did to uh, Aaliyah's kids. In oh, a way. yes. Yeah. You know. Great point. What else do we have on this, guys? What do you want to talk about? I'll talk about who said it. You know, from my perspective. Uh-oh. Susan, we lost you, I think. Bubba, are you still with me? I can hear hey. you. There, Susan's back a bit. Susan, you can hear give me us now? a sentence. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. You there? Just Susan? You're coming in and out. Uh, fine. I'll tell you. Um, I don't know. There you Is go. Is that any better? There you go. Yeah, that's okay. better. Okay. So Queen Queen Allison calls this um, this meeting of the small council together, and uh, you know they're trying to keep everything quiet. They aren't you know going to let it out known that the uh, that the king had died. They are putting people in the the dungeons that could pot- potentially be on the other side or let information out. Um, and uh, they, one member of the small council who was protesting this because he was saying, you know, we all swore to the old king that we were going to, you know, put uh, Renera as his heir. Um, he gets his throat slashed by this. Uh, uh, Kristen Cole, 
and yeah. and he does Kristen Cole too. I think you know he's a very interesting character and one who gets referenced in the main series quite a bit because here he's the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, and he becomes kind of the very definition of a Kingsguard who had overstepped his bounds and gotten involved in the politics of what was going on instead of just you know kind of sticking to his role as Kingsguard. And so I think that because of the memory of him and what he did, then, you know, historically, when we get to the main story that we're all so involved in now, people reference him as, you know, having done that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and uh, definitely in the beginning, as you said, him just coming up and, and cutting that, that one lord's throat in the middle of the council, that was uh, way overstepping his bounds. As the story progresses, though, as Aegon, I guess, pronounces him Hand of the King, right, after he gets tired of the other one, right. um, what choice does he have but to be political at that point? That's true. That's true. But I think he had, he had already kind of made those choices, choices to do that at that point. I agree. Uh, I definitely which, agree with that. Yeah, and, and, and here again, um, to know more about his background and why he might have made some of the choices that he would, you would want to read The Road Prince because there you get kind of the background of his involvement with uh, this uh, Queen Rhaenyra when she was a young girl and him being her sworn sword at that time and some of the things that went on between them that play mm-hmm. into why he is acting the way he is now. Ah, very interesting. Well, we will definitely have to cover that on this podcast sometime in the future. Bubba, what else have you got for me, sir? Well, I want to touch on something. And a, a while ago, I mentioned the dragons battling dragons and dragon riders battling dragon riders, how, how that's so exciting and how that we may not get to see that play out in the main series of books. And so one of the things that I did enjoy about this so much, I did enjoy the fact that it showed you how dragons could be defeated by mere humans. And I, why did I enjoy it so much? Because once again, it, it makes me think about the main series. I start thinking about, well, Daenerys has these three dragons. How could anybody defeat Daenerys? And sure enough, we have a lot of stories of just regular human beings coming and taking out dragons, whether it's the storming of the dragon pit where just a, a king's landing mob goes in and Kate kills a bunch of dragons and, you know, shows how kind of a swarm of humans could take them down. Now, of course, they were chained up Mm -hmm. and various things, but I like that. But I also love the fact that uh, a dragon, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, is killed by at at sea in the narrow sea in a battle there by ships with uh, long hooks hitting it. And, And so it suddenly gets my mind thinking about once again, the main series, and wonder if there'll be echoes between the two. And so I really enjoyed human ingenuity. I love us overcoming the odds and killing innocent dragons. <laughs> it, it seemed to me that the majority of the killings were uh, went through the eye, right? Because that's the place where the scales, I guess, are the there. There are no scales, and so you can get to the brain. There was there was a lot of stabbings in the eyes or shots in the eyes, right? But yeah. there were there was the long claw one. I love that that it just kind of because of the weight of the ship and and the speed of the dragon that it literally tore itself apart in a way. Good. And so, <laughs> do there you know once again we're focusing on the princess and the queen, but is there a chance that that's a bit of foreshadowing anyway? I don't know. I I, I just love that it existed. It showed me 
you know, here I've read these books uh, so long ago, and I always think to myself, well, how could you defeat him? And, and here George is saying, well, here's a way you could defeat him. So I really did like that. Yeah. Well, and yeah. another thing that I love and how it relates to the main series is I, I know that in the one of the Blu-rays, I think it was the season four Blu-ray histories, uh, where they talked a little bit about uh, the dragons coming to Dorne and the Dornish defeating one of the dragons or something like that uh, during the original conquest. Um, and here we got the actual detail of like scorpion bolts and, and things like that. So I, I, you know, there were, there were some very specific things and now you can see even in the context of the main series, why maybe Tywin Lannister was interested in bringing Dorne into the fold a little bit, um, just because they were becoming aware of the dragons in Essos of Danny's. And does, I guess the question for the TV series would be, does Cersei have, any knowledge obviously the dornish seem to now be allied with daenerys in, in the television series and and it looks like with arianne um one way or the other she's going to ally with uh, some kind of targaryen be it fagon or maybe eventually daenerys or, or whatever so um you know will the dornish and and their obvious way or their successful way of killing dragons before Will it be a moot point in the series when we go forward? Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to see it. I want to see it. Let's go, mankind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, and just like you mentioned, the sheer mobs, and that was something that really it struck me weird. It's like, because um, the way that this history describes it, it's almost like that some of them were uh, just got their ears, their their blood raised up by these this one guy's word and i couldn't help but wonder susan if there wasn't some kind of magic involved in that to get so many people to run into fire blasting dragons in order to kill them <laughs> yeah i mean that that's you know that's just what i was thinking when uh bubba was talking about you know mobs being able to overtake them and and so forth i was the thought that went to my mind was as long as those people in those mobs are 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 willing to get burnt, you know. Bubba, do you, do you think that there might have been any magic involved in that, because or just crazy, just so <laughs> so done with it that they they don't care? Right. I I have to be honest, Matt. I didn't read it as magic. Maybe because, as I've already expressed, I'm barely so pro human. I want to prove we could do it. We could take them down. <laughs> It just takes hundreds of hundreds of casualties. <laughs> you know, this was this was the storming of the be- storming of the beach at Normandy. You know, it, a lot of people sadly were what you would call cannon fodder, but they did it. They killed those evil dragons, and we see in this story. I should point out maybe one of the reasons why I was so glad to see us kill them is we see their dragons' true destructive nature and just mm. the horrific horrors they can create on society. And so, you know, this is another thing. Once again, I hate to keep echoing back to the uh, main series, what I would call the main series of books. But, you know, yes, we can like Daenerys, but these are savage monster killers that can really, really just kill swaths of people in the blink of an eye. And so uh, that's one thing. The horrors of war really come through in this novella and really is you would believe one of the points Martin's trying to hit and does so successfully. Excellent. Susan, what do you got for us? Well, um, I, I love the echoes here. Uh, like I said, references of things that you do hear in the main series. And 
one of the things that you hear very early in, uh, I think, A Game of Thrones is the mention of Eric and Eric, the two uh, Kingsguard members who are twin brothers and end up uh, on different sides. Because what ends up happening early in the story is you have five of the Kingsguard at uh, King's Landing and two of them out uh, at Dragonstone. And uh, and then you had another one from King's Landing who kind of defected and went out to Dragonstone, and um, he brought with him the crown of King Jaehaerys, which was really valuable because, you know, one of the things that the Greens had on their side at the very beginning of this was, you know, what they consider all the, all the real uh, important... Uh, Things that 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 make the king, you know, all the the symbols that make him look important. Right. He, he and the money. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's in the king in King's Landing. He's in the Red Keep. He's got the Iron Throne. He's wearing the crown of King Aegon the Conqueror, and he's you know carrying his sword Blackfire. So the one um, King's Guard member who left, he brought with him the crown that uh, the king who just passed away, Viserys, was wearing, which also happened to be the crown of the good king, Jaehaerys. And uh, so they had that, at least, to, queen, to, uh, to crown Rhaenyra with. Uh, but later on in the story, as it goes forward, you get this uh, Eric and Eric, the ones with an A, ones with an E, who uh, are in the king's guard on different sides of here, having this, uh, this battle duel where they ended up killing each other. So this big tragedy that's sung in the in the songs that Sansa loves to sigh about um, takes place here. Sansa and her songs, yeah. I, I love that you brought up the fact that, that Aegon also had Blackfire because these symbols are important, evidently, to different factions of, of people in, in terms of the realms of politics. That's essentially that sword being given to the, the bastard was what made... Uh, what created the Blackfire Rebellion, right? It definitely was one of the things that, that was a, a big played a big role in it. And I also am very interested to see if it will show up uh, here in the end because obviously it's been missing for so many years and you know, people have their theories about where it might be, but uh, it's, it's missing. Um, right. As well as the other important sword, which is talked about here, Dark Sister, and I love how it's used in this story where King and Damon, uh, when they're having that battle over the god's eye on the dragon back, and he leaps from his dragon onto uh, Aemon, one-eyed uh, dragon, while yeah. wielding Dark Sister and actually uh, goes through the eye, his, puts the, his one good eye with the sword, which ended up, with them uh, down in the bottom of the lake for many years and somehow was retrieved over time. Yeah. Boy, those guys could hold their breath, I <laughs> guess. Uh, Bubba, what do you got for us? Well, I guess what I would jump to is that I was talking about the horrors of war. And Susan mentioned this uh, before we started recording, too. And that is is how there, quote-unquote, really isn't a winner. And I wonder if that also echoes to the main series. So spoiler alert for the end, which you've heard mentioned on the TV show and you've heard kind of talked about in other places, 
and that is when someone is fed to fed to a dragon, and that's it. It's over. And so neither side won. You know, they're fighting to crown these two people on the throne, and one of them, King Aegon, he gets horrifically uh, scarred, and you know his armor kind of melted to himself in a dragon battle. And then Queen Rhaenyra, you know, I'll just say is R.I.P. And so, what did you guys think? Was that a satisfying ending, or is it just, uh, dare I say it once again, a way to show that nobody can win when these things happen? What do you think, Susan? I think it definitely, this whole battle to me shows that uh, it, it, it did nothing to help the Targaryens. It's one of the major downfalls of the dynasty was, was this occurrence. So, yeah, I tend to say it, it didn't really benefit anybody in the long run. Yeah, I totally agree there. I, I feel like it was to show that there there's not going to be any clear winner, and I, that makes does make me think about the conclusion of the main series proper. It's like, you know, George has promised us kind of a bittersweet ending, right? So, um, that would you call, would you call this ending bittersweet? No. Um, (laughs) well, maybe, maybe in a way actually, um, because, you know, life goes on, I guess. Um, and I think that's what's going to end up happening in the end of the books. I did want to ask, um, because there are so many parallels between this story and the main story, like, um, Renera is stillborn baby has a tail. I mean, is that its description seemed very similar to me to, uh, Daenerys's child called, or and Daenerys's and, uh, called Drogo's child. Uh, I mean, is this just a, a Targaryen genetic trait? Well, you know, when this story came out, I mean, that was one of the things that people were uh, really interested in was that detail of her stillborn daughter being described as, you know, just deformed with no heart and having this scaly tail. I mean, scales? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, when before we had, I think most people had felt that the whole thing about Daenerys's child was to do with the magic that had been involved. Um, and so this brought up the idea that perhaps it wasn't, that there might be more to it than that. And I think that, um, you know, I'll have to go back to the world of ice and fire uh, to find out all the details again. But uh, in, this was the first time that we've seen something like that. But I think there's more um, examples, a couple more examples of similar types of uh, deformities that were described in the Targaryen uh, bloodline. Mm. So yeah, there's something mm. something fishy going on there. Yeah, I remember you. Well, I think during our Game of Thrones read, you bringing that up that there were there were more accounts, and I can't remember if you cited this account or if you cited others. But uh, very interesting. Baba, should we even root for Daenerys? Is she even human? Well, <laughs> if this was a political ad, I would say Daenerys Targaryen. Show us the tail. Prove you don't have a tail. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Matt, I want to talk about my favorite character in The Princess and the Queen, if that's okay. Sure. And it's a character known as Nettles. And so we Susan just brought up a good point. It's one of the reasons people read this novel was to find out various things, this novella. 
And one of the things we wanted to know is because in the main series of books, we've heard this thing about a dragon horn and a dragon binder, and that's the way you would control a dragon. But we find out in the book, there in the novella, excuse me, there are little hints that, oh, wait, maybe it's Targaryen blood or whatever, or maybe – just maybe you can tempt, tame a dragon like you would tame anything. And Nettles is this more small girl on Dragonstone who seemingly doesn't have any Targaryen blood in her. We're not 100% sure on that. But she seemingly tames a dragon herself by bringing it slaughtered sheep each morning. And so that seems like you know kind of the way we would tame animals here. And so it seems quite natural. And so there isn't any mention of anybody having a horn. And so this little, dare I say it, one of the small folk being able to do this and being able to rise up and ride a dragon, uh, and this was a wild dragon, I should point out, really impressive. And I think that's one of the reasons why I believe a lot of readers are like me and find her kind of a fascinating character as much as anybody can be in this novella. So does that imply that um, you know, all of this discussion we've had through talking about the books, um, you know, well, does Brown Ben Plum, could he potentially be a dragon rider? Does, does Tyrion have to have tar be a secret targ to have, to ride a dragon, you know, right. What, 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 don't we want Arya to ride a dragon someday? We've, we've all had those kind of fantasy kind of discussions, but, um, to me, this story really does point out that uh, I guess the possibilities are endless uh, in, in terms of Daenerys' dragons themselves. I would like to think that Targaryen blood is still a, a stronger way to do it, but I don't know. What do you think, Susan? Uh, well, I, I agree. I mean, I think my sense is that being a Targaryen raises the uh, prospects that you'd be able to do that a lot easier um, and I don't know if having some kind of magical thing like the the horn the dragon binder it would or you know that there's different devices like that may, maybe out there we don't really know enough yet to know much about it but this does tend to make you think that the, there's a possibility that you know that people could in the right circumstances and in the right way be able to to uh, just Tame a dragon, and um, the only thing that you have to kind of question with Nettles is there could be the possibility that she might be one of these dragon seeds. I mean, mm -hmm. the way she's described physically doesn't give you the impression that she has any Targaryen blood in her, but um, you don't know that for sure. Yeah, that's it. The thing that makes you think – another reason why she might be one of these quote-unquote dragon seeds, the bastard children, is that a Targaryen is attracted to her. And we know they tend to only like relatives, so that is a, that is a bad sign for her. But I'll point out that Nettles, another reason why I think people may like her, she escaped. She lives. Yeah. She's a mystery. Where did she go? And so she – amongst all this thing of many characters doing many awful things – I didn't find her doing anything necessarily terrible. She gave me hope that just a simple small folk, who's to say hot pie, doesn't have enough sheep or enough pies to tame a dragon. Let's make it happen, people. 
Matt choked and had a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, that made me cough. I just thinking about the uh, hot pie on a dragon. That that would be, that would be that would be funny. On the other hand, let's talk about that uh, dragon binder horn though. Um, it does burn people up on the inside, and we know that uh, Daenerys on more than one occasion has has shown resistance to heat. Um, in the books, we will still clarify. There's only been one instance of her being resistant to fire as opposed to the television show, um, but always resistant to heat. So it almost implies to me that that Targaryen bloodline is almost needed in order to properly use that horn um, successfully at least more than once, right? That would yeah. be the thought, but, but we need this next book, George. George, this is, this is something uh, that, that I'm not 100% sure, but... In the Princess and the Queen, like did George write a lot more for it and then chop it down, or is that is that just the world of ice and fire? And and dare I say it, is the fact that I would much rather have the sixth book in the series of the Song of Ice and Fire, and instead got this. I wonder if just kind of subconsciously it also made me less a fan of this novella. Ah, uh, uh, I do think you're right. I think that there was. Uh, that this was actually a longer story that has been cut down for this purpose. I believe I heard that. I didn't know that. I know that it's been cut down further still into the world of ice and fire, right? There's just quotes from it. Right. Yeah. Right. But um, I had no idea that this might have been, you know, a three or 400 page story that just had to get cut down. Well, then he also, like I say, the, the, that Rogue Prince is so related to this that maybe some of it ended up in there. Mm. Oh, yeah. That's possibly true as well. Um, summary equals three hours long. That's from Iron Throne in the chat. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, I've got another note here. Um I like the mention of the law. I mean, I didn't like what it meant, but um, just the fact that we got the mention of the law of the first night and when it was ended and and all of that, and we'd heard about that in Dance with Roos, I'm pretty sure. Um, maybe that's also the that line of thinking is what the Mad King felt in regards to Tyrion's wife. Could be. Could be. You mean, to, yeah, Tywin's, Tywin's wife? Tywin's wife, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, actually, I, that thought has crossed my mind before. Not that he necessarily took it that far, because, um, you know, again, if if uh, people want to go with the idea of uh, the possibility that Father Tyrion, it wouldn't have been at, at that point in time, but. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Right. That yeah, that that would be at least second night. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that would probably be rape. Um, but then again, I guess first night is essentially rape as well. So, uh, anyway, those were some things. And the other thing that I really liked um, was kind of a, a lot of allusion to uh, the Targaryen Baratheon blood being hinted at, which of course is what allowed Robert to make his claim to the throne. Um, 
Although it not necessarily, but it seems like that the, the Baratheons and the Targaryens have, have gotten together a couple of times, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think okay. so. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they talk about, uh, yeah, Queen uh, Rhaenyra's, uh mother, mother or something. I don't know. Uh, or, I'm not exactly sure. I think it. I think yeah. it was that her, her father. No, never mind. I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> Well, I, I just know that there's a lot of allusions to it, so it helps draw that line as to why Robert's claim, you know, of people. I mean, obviously, you can but, look at the at the family trees and what have you, and, and it's clear, but I, I just thought that it's good that it's put in a story context uh, more often um, than just, you know, just like maybe one line or two in A Game of Thrones or in A Clash of Kings. So, um, And Lord Tarly uh, of... This age declared for the black, so I guess he was um, pretty true to his standpoint throughout uh, the or the the house was pretty true to its standpoint throughout history, right? All cravens is what I say, <laughs> <laughs> right? And and, you know, and that's interesting too because he realized that with the greens, that's the high towers, so they being such an important family in the reach that you know when the story talks about the fact that there were quite a few prominent families in the reach that actually uh declared for the blacks i thought that was that was interesting yeah i thought so too i thought so too what else we got guys well i want to just throw out a question for everybody and maybe once again i just need action and stuff did everybody have a favorite battle or a favorite kind of conflict i know the dragon fight over the god's eye is pretty good i liked because once again, it, it, it echoes so much of the series and vice versa, is how what you would call these kind of minor figures can somehow rise up. You know, if you read the first book, Bruce Bolton is such a minor figure and he kind of rises up. And I kind of really like the battles around Tumbleton. I thought it was a great way of how the next thing, you know, dare I say it, some nobody has come up and taken control. It kind of flips everything on its head. So I really liked those battles an awful lot. And once again, it, it's showing how it wasn't all just, okay, dragon, go do this, dragon, go do that. So uh, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I liked, I liked the Tumbleton stuff, too. Um, my favorite was the God's Eye, though. How about you, Susan? That's, I, that's my favorite as well. Um, though I also find that one interesting where uh, the Prince Rainies on her uh the Red Queen dragon was sent mm. out early on and ended up battling with uh, both Aemon and Aegon. Um, and that was the battle that, uh, you know, this newly crowned king, Aegon II, uh, ended up getting so badly injured, and his dragon, mm. Sunfire as well. And it, also that dragon, which sounds like, you know, one of the most you know, glorious-looking dragons you'd ever see. It was all golden and everything to the point where he even took the gold dragon as his standard three-headed gold dragon instead of the typical uh, red on black. His was gold on black. And uh, yeah. so that that was an interesting battle. And uh, just the, the whole background with this Prince Rainies, who she's the one that they refer to as the queen who never was because um, her father was the eldest 
son of the King Jaehaerys, but they passed over her line to the next one because it just stayed, you know, a male totally drew it. Um, and I was just looking back here with the Baratheon stuff, and it was actually her mother was a Baratheon, that queen, queen uh, or Princess Rhaenys, the queen who never was. Her father, Prince Aemon, the first son of King Jaehaerys, married a Jocelyn Baratheon. Okay. All right. But that is, is that the sole place where Robert gets his bloodline from? No, no. Okay, no, that's, it, what, that's, it's that's after what I was questioning. I was like, oh, there's more thing with the with the Baratheons than, than just, okay. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah because yeah, that, would have, that would have passed through the Targaryen line as opposed to the Targaryen blood passing through the Baratheon line. Now I get it. Sorry. Right, right. And and, and that's a lot closer. The closer one was that, that uh, it was the last um, King Aegon, the Aegon the Unlikely, one of his daughters ended up marrying into the Baratheon family. Okay, that's right. That's right. That's uh, closer to the Duncan Egg age, I guess. Yes. Um, cool. What else we got? Susan? Well, oh, oh Bubba? sorry. No, no, no. Let's go to Susan. Then I, I have yet another question for everybody. Okay. <laughs> um. Well, to go a little further with this uh, Princess Rainey's the queen who never was, uh, you know, she ended up marrying this uh, Corliss Valerian, who's called the Sea Snake, is it? Um, and he's supposed to be the wealthiest man in uh, the Seven Kingdoms at that time. He has the largest uh, navy. So the fact that they've got him on the, on the black side is, is a real plus. Um, and he's an interesting character, and then I think he's one of the ones that did some of the uh, furthest exploration in terms of, like, you know, traveling on the sea, exploring the world earlier. Uh, but, uh, you know, Princess Rainey's marries him. They have two children, and their son, Mare, is the first husband of the Queen Rhaenyra's. Um, and their daughter was the first wife of Prince Damon. If you could follow all that. Because yeah, I was going to say, that, that will make your eyes glaze over a little bit. Yeah, yeah, because then when those two spouses die, then that's when Queen Renera marries Damon. So they were married to the brother and sister who were the children of Rainey's and Corliss Valerian. <laughs> right. And I, I, I really like just the, the, dare I say it, the name Valerian and the idea of, because one of the things that always struck me a bit odd is that this is the Valerian Empire fell apart in the doom. But they're saying every Valerian was there on the peninsula during the doom. And so I, I thought it made a lot of sense that there would be this other family with a very convenient name of Valerian, <laughs> that would be out there. Okay, they don't have any dragons, but they've still got the pale white hair, and so give, them, give it up for them. <laughs> right. right, and I love the connection uh, Susan and I were talking about before the recording of the connection between um, Cersei's Master of Ships in Feast yeah. with the Valerian look 
and his uh, obviously uh, has some knowledge of the sea, and now you can see the connection there. Although he was a bastard, I, I think, but he was still, we're assuming, part of this family line, right? Yeah, he definitely was. Yeah. He just They gave him the last name Waters in the story because of, of the bastardy. Mm-hmm. Right on. Very cool. Uh, Bubba, you said you had a question? Yeah, and uh, it's not like a trivia question where there's a straight-up answer. I just want us to speculate. Maybe people don't like us speculating about things we can't possibly know. But, you know, <laughs> to go back about how, I, you know, some of us really want book six and we're getting this stuff instead. And so I always wonder, why do you think George, because he wrote a lot. I mean, this is not what many of us would think of when we think of a novella. Would you just consider how long this is? And once mm-hmm. again, the chance that he had to trim it. Why do you think it appeals so much to him? Why is this what he really loves doing? Maybe even more than the typical books is creating these kind of layered upon layered worlds. Did he like it because here he could write this real fun story and not have to go through the POV structure, which you know makes it so much longer. He could just kind of quote unquote, get to the chase. Well, so I'm admittedly asking us to speculate, and I wonder which one it is. I wonder if if George is like, you know, it's so hard for him to come up. He's like, okay, I want this to happen in the main series, but it has to happen organically. And I'm a, you know, I'm a gardener. I planted the the flowers, but these weeds are growing out over here. How do I do it? Where he suddenly thinks to himself, you know, I don't have to worry about the weeds problems or getting character A to care, you know, from point A to point C. And he's like, you know, I can just spit this out. And so I personally wonder if that's why with the world of ice and fire and this, he seemingly has put out so much content other than the main series because he just enjoys this more, I wonder. And um, why that is, is once again, it's unlike his gartering nature, he could just cut to the chase. You know, he could just say, okay, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And so I was wondering if you guys wonder why this man who we've given all our money to and bought all his books and bought all of his stuff, why he's pulled to this maybe more than pulled to book uh, six. Susan, you want to answer first? Uh, sure. I believe that I, – I think that the way this came about was because of the fact that he was in the process of helping Linda and Ilio write the um, World of Ice and Fire. And he just ended up, when he started getting into the Targaryen history and writing about it, the things that were going to go into that book, I think he just got really kind of carried away with some of that. And um, I, I know that I've listened to a few of their interviews about the writing of the book where they would say, you know, all of a sudden they'd be getting these huge, um, you know, emails or, you know, huge faxes from from um, Martin where he had just like overnight come up with uh, these, these uh, writings about all these different things. And I think this just grew to be so big that it couldn't be held within that book. And so that's where he decided, well, you know, he's coming out with these different, because I know there was even some talk at the time about him maybe putting out another Duncan egg, and instead he put out the princess and the queen, and then shortly after it came the the rogue prince in these two uh, collections of, uh, you know, fantasy, short fantasy stories. So so in your speculation then, Susan, the idea is, is these stories just fascinated him more, and he just wanted to go into Targaryen history? 
Yeah, I think they, they're an outgrowth of him going into the Targaryen history because of the fact that he was working on the World of Ice and Fire with them. And he just, when he started getting into this, he really got into it and just, you know, came as, as a result of that. Hmm, interesting. See, for me, just because of a recent interview where he says, you know, I now have thousands of pages of history of this story in regards to the possibility of doing a Game of Thrones spinoff with HBO... I just wonder if he hasn't kind of taken um, in his own way a Tolkien approach. You know, Tolkien wrote for years and years. How many years were between The Hobbit and, and The Lord of the Rings? Uh, yet he, even as far back as World War One, he was already, you know, turning his his linguistic abilities into um, stories as to their origin, you know. So he was writing the history of what was going to ultimately be in his books for a very long period of time and even continuing to do so, um, you know, through the Lord of the Rings and, and shortly thereafter. So I, I almost just feel like that this is just George feeling like, you know, I have created such a complex world in my main series. I owe it to have an answer for everything, whether anybody ever reads it or not. I think that a good portion of his time with Winds of Winter has been figuring out how to fit all of this history um, to where it makes the story of Winds of Winter come out. And I think that's where his problem has been. He's just been, I, I mean, and again, this is just pure speculation, but I, I think that, you know, as somebody who wants to build a complete world, whether it's ever published to the entire public or not, until perhaps after his death and somebody decides that they want to put it out there. But, you know, he just wants to have, his own answers for everything that he puts into his main series, Gardner or not, um, I, I've never I've never thought about his process as being so much like that as because his stuff is just too complex and it aligns too well. Save maybe the sex of a horse. Everything everything that's important always lines up, and I just don't see how you can do that without having you know taking time to go back and write history stuff so that you have a place from the from which to garden uh to to help with your story process you know what i want book six to hell with this garden get me a garden weasel let's tear this thing up <laughs> and if this grew out of the world of ice and fire and that he wrote, spent all his time on this instead of book six i'm gonna burn the world of ice and fire <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there's so many things that are just so cool. Like, you know, you have this Sir Florian Grace deal in this story. And, you know, I, I'm start, now I'm starting to think, wow, how many people from Maidenpool are named Florian now? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's after the movie Frozen. How many Ellas are we going to see? Dear Lord. Yeah. Name them after a song, baby. Just don't call them Florian the Fool. Not the same dude. Um, here was another thing that kind of struck me as odd. Susan, I'll go to you first. Um, there's this phrase put in this book, kill the writer and the dragon will depart. Um, and, and this is kind of in relation to the show. Obviously, uh, Daenerys's other two dragons in the Battle of, of Marine did not mm -hmm. have a writer. So where they just 
sticking with it because uh, Drogon was so um, forceful with them? Or, or, I mean, obviously that goes against the logic that this person has. Is this person's logic wrong? Hmm. Well, again, we got to separate book from show to to realize you're coming from you know two different yeah, sources that's, there. That's- that's my question. Is is there any other instance in A Song of Ice and Fire where we've seen Daenerys' dragons act um, without her being a, a, on top of it? I guess not, right? Mm, nah, well, I mean, I, I, it seems like, you know, I can remember in some of the earlier chapters when they're pretty young that they do seem to react to her mood. You know, when she gets angry, they seem to get kind of, uh, you know, they, that's when they sort of act up or get wild up themselves. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Bubba, any thoughts on that, or is it not important? No, no, no. I, I, I'm i just trying to rack my mind of the novels, and in to me, the dragons have really not done much or shown much personality. I would say what Susan's hitting at is a bit like how in the first couple of books, the if a Stark got mad, their direwolf would take that emotion and that mm-hmm. anger with them, and so yeah, I've definitely I've definitely seen that some, but I, I just can't recall any other instance from the novels. Yeah, understood. What else we got on this, guys? Well, well do we want to talk about the great, the late, the very first, not first of his name, but the first Joffrey? You tried to ride somebody else's dragon, and it didn't work too well. There can only be there can be only one. Uh-huh. But see, going where no man has gone before—that's what Joffrey does. Right. So, just in case everybody gets lost in the weeds of this crazy story, when King's Landing was just going nuts and everything was falling apart, uh, and the, of course the uh, shepherd had gotten everybody excited to go kill the dragons, it was. Maybe his namesake, original Joffrey, who tried to who tried to get over there and stop all the bleeding, but he tried to take somebody else's dragon, and as they yeah. say, it was King's Landing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think his as dragon a, was. I think his dragon, because he had one, was probably over in the dragon uh, yes. thing. Yeah. Yes, he was. Uh, but here, here's the thing: a mother's love is undying. But a mother's dragon is not. <laughs> uh, interestingly, when you watch that video that they made for the uh, uh, the DVDs, that part of the story is voiced by uh, the actor who played Joffrey, and it's it, you know, like I say, they they really put their personality into it. He talks about how you know the stupid dragon didn't know you know. You know what the guy was trying to do, and <laughs> ah, that's perfect. Yeah. That's, that's so the power doesn't come from the name, because the one here in this story, complete goofball. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, obviously. What else you got, Susan? You were starting. Oh uh, well, I just you know the the fact that the king Aegon gets really out of commission, you know, put out of commission pretty early on with that uh, battle that he and his brother had with uh, Queen, uh, with the uh, Rainies. And, uh, you know, she went down and, and died, both her and her dragon. 
and he got horribly injured at his dragon, and he was really out of commission for uh, the rest of the war until the very end. And, uh, you know, at first he was in the Red Keep, uh, just all uh, milk of the poppy uh, and in bed because he was so severely injured. Um, And then uh, when, at the time when uh, uh, Rhaenyra and uh, Daemon come and actually take over King's Landing, he had disappeared, just totally disappeared, which was thought to be very strange due to the fact that he was still, you know, uh, so incapacitated. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting thing. And his dragon, um, at one point, some of the people that were on the side of the blacks went out to try and take out the dragon, but they were unsuccessful. In fact, the dragon, even though it was uh, grounded at that point in time, couldn't seem to fly, it took out a lot more people, and then uh, and then it disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. Would uh, you call that? Sorry to interrupt, Matt. Would you call that one of George R. R. Martin's classic death fakeouts, as Matt sometimes refers to, happens a lot uh, in uh, the later books, especially Book Five. You know, this kind of death fakeout where you think a character's dead, and in this case, you thought Aegon was dead, but sure enough, he gets smuggled out and somehow is still okay. I, I, I guess you could see it that way. Sure. Yeah. Especially the dragon. Yeah. I also liken the parallel to, uh, you know, every uh, Bran and, and Rickon being brought back to hide in the crypts of Winterfell, you know, mm. you know, just hidden, plain out of sight. Which I have to say, that was kind of an Agatha Christie. Oh, look, he's been here all along. You know, Scooby Doo kind of. Right, right. I wasn't. I wasn't very impressed by that. Yeah, so she goes, she goes, Renera takes out King's Landing, so what does he do? He sneaks out the back door and goes to her place, Dragonstone. Yeah. Real smart move there, Aegon. It worked and, out for him. Right, well, Renera would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for that pesky kid. <laughs> <laughs> that pesky dragon. That pesky right. dragon. That right, actually... how about this, that, that toasted kid, that, that crusty kid, he's got you know, armor burnt to him. Yeah. Well, the biggest mystery for me was, you know, where the dragon went. I'll be honest, more so because I, you know, not finding Lord Swift or whatever, the the Master of Whispers, and not finding Aegon uh, screamed to me that they had gotten away together somehow through one of the secret tunnels or what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, But I could not figure out, you know, the dragon, and, and I guess its wing was healed just enough to where it could make uh, a flight to somewhere and then they could get it to Dragonstone or it got to Dragonstone um, and the big uh, the big battle that the, uh, suddenly people recalled seeing outside of Dragonstone uh, made a little bit of sense or, or out uh, off of the Dragon Mount I guess uh, but it did it just it seemed a little bit too oh gotta wrap this up quickly here here we go <laughs> Well, Matt, this was a tough read. Are you upset that he wrapped it up? Well, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, to me, that was the most disappointing part of the story. Uh, it, even, even having trouble reading and getting through all of the names and everything, I thought that um, really, in terms of of the the slaying of the dragons, the most 
uh, horrific and, and also most exciting part was the mob going to take out all of the dragons at the pit. Um, you know, that, that seemed to have the most human involvement and the, um, I also really liked, I also really liked Darren. Is it Darren? No, Damon. And <laughs> here we go again. You know, I also really like Damon and Nettles, you know, on the other side, you know, trying to find Amon so that they, you know, because all he was doing was just causing terror on the small folks. I mean, I liked all of that stuff, but then to have it be to where, you know, uh, well, you know, oh, Rhaenerys, six bites. Yep. Gone. Uh, Aegon is the king. Wait, there's another story to that, but we'll tell you that later. I was just kind of like, oh. <laughs> well, Matt, I have to be honest, even though I really like Nettles, I, I was not a huge fan of Prince Damon Targaryen. Well, I wasn't either, except for the fact that, that he, you know, he was trying to, to get rid of um, Aemon, who was doing nothing but just being vengeful for no reason. I mean, he had no strategic value. He's got a huge weapon, and he's got no strategic... He's got the last of the conquering dragons, and he offers no contribution. (laughs) Matt, you're going to be a great general. (laughs) Well, it's like, if you've got the 20 kiloton nuclear weapon, and you've got a 5 kiloton nuclear weapon, which do you want to use on the capital? (laughs) Well... You know, how many casualties are we talking about, Matt? I don't want to use either. Yeah, good point. That's why I don't but want to so, use dragons. But, I'm but glad Matt, all the dragons, I'm glad almost all the dragons died. I'm, I'm glad, you know. Oh, oh, that's interesting, because a second ago, Matt, you had said about, you know, how the, the, the taking of the dragon pit and the ride in King's Landing, how you liked it so much. And were you glad the dra- it sounded when you were first saying it that you were upset that the dragons got killed or, or are you glad that No, they got- I I was much more involved in the humanity of these people just so desperate to do this. You know, I don't think it was a good thing. Um but I am not a dragon lover like, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people go, "Oh, this show's got dragons." I'm not like that or, "Oh, these books have dragons in a really cool way." Uh-uh. I, I like much more the political intrigue and all of that stuff. So really the first part of this story was much more interesting to me about the small council and all of that stuff than the ending at all. Okay. Well, it is great that the mob was just sick of this Targaryen infighting, and so they take it out literally on the house sigil. They're like, let's destroy this out of a bitch. <laughs> uh, which also brings up the fact that, you know, they talked about the fact that this uh, queen... Uh, Rhaenerys had initially been so beloved of the realm, and then when she actually uh, took got, got the throne for that short period of time, uh, I guess she was kind of welcomed by the city at first, but they quickly turned against her. And also the fact that uh, she uh, got cut up by the throne quite a bit, and that that's been a symbol of you know that you're not legitimate you're not accepted the throne is going to cut you yeah that was very interesting and we've heard those uh stories before about how the throne uh uh would see unfit rulers being there i i i almost kind of wonder and i don't know that this will happen in the television show but i almost kind of wonder if we'll see 
Cersei. I just kind of saw some parallels between Rhaenyra and Cersei also, as well as Rhaenyra and, and, and Daenerys. Um, I, I just wonder if, uh, you know, Cersei now being yeah. queen in a television show, uh, if this means, you know, if she gets pricked by that thing, then maybe we'll see that. Because they do tell those stories in the history of Blu-rays uh, right. of some of that. Also, going back to, I guess it was Maidenpool, I can't remember, um, but uh, there was a mention of a character named Alice Rivers who was helping someone, and I can't remember who now because I read the story quickly yesterday and I just wrote down a few notes. I should have made it more extensive. But she, it implied to me that she was seeing things in the flames. Mm. Yeah, Matt. There, the to girl? me, it's... Somebody start. Somebody <laughs> not. I was just going to say, was that the girl who was riding with uh, Prince Aemon there? Is that who it was? I can't remember which, which one it was. But somebody was helping um, one of the sides. I can't even remember which side now. But her name, I wrote down Alice Rivers, Seeing Things in the Flames. And it, it was because I had gotten the impression that she was helping somebody um, pinpoint a location or something like that. Yeah, I was going to say there is some of this. She is, if you're thinking of Alice Rivers, she was a bedmate of somebody, Aemond Targaryen, and she saw a vision in the fire, similar to, as the Wiki of Ice and Fire calls it, the Red Priest of R'hllor, the Lord of Light. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, So, uh, given how old... Uh, Melisandre is, did she change her name to Alice Rivers for a little while? There's my crack pot. I have to make one crack pot. <laughs> Let's statement. do it. It's Melisandre, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. Just had to throw that in there. It's not in a Song of Ice and Fire podcast if I don't. Um, what before else we got? After, before or after she went to uh, uh, you know, across the seas? Oh, she, she was born across the seas. She just assumed the identity of Alice Rivers when she was over here. Why not? Let's do it. Yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, I guess I guess one of my final points, Matt, would be that the thing about the main series, which we keep referring to, especially that first book, is it's so Starks-centric. And then in the second book, you know, Theon and the Greyjoys become so centric. And in at least this part of the story, the princess and the queen that we're talking about, the Greyjoys and more more importantly, I would say the Starks seem so tangential and not, not involved at all. Mm. And I, I wonder if that's another thing that maybe subconsciously had gave me trouble trying to get involved. There are a lot of what I would dare call minor houses involved in this that is a bit shocking. And I, and the Starks, even though they do have a good battle there around the God's eye, they, they don't seem to be in any sort of true kind of power, even close to the power in King's Landing in this. True. They uh they just get kind of summoned, right? And fight for the, the blacks, right? So um were they at Tumbleton? Ooh, I don't remember that. Let me check real quick. Susan, do you remember? I don't think so. Okay, so they just fought in the Riverlands basically. They jo well, I know that they joined up with the blacks at Heron Hall and they fought some, but yeah, they're just very few mentions of them other than, you know, the kids going to see him or going to, going to Winterfell and, right. and getting their allegiance and, and then them 
participating in some battles. Yeah, and and having a very stark like horrific outcome of that battle. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh good point. Susan, final point from you? Um well for final points, then I think what I'd like to touch on is how this ends with the uh the Aegon who becomes the king after this one that they call Aegon the uh uh not the unlikely, he's the uh the, the dragon bane, um, uh, mm. the unlucky, I think they might call him. I don't remember exactly, yeah. but he's the, the third Aegon. But he's the uh, second to youngest son of this Princess Rhaenyra. He's the one where he and his younger brother were being shipped across the sea when they got right. uh, you know, uh, ambushed, and he flies back on his dragon, the one and only time he flies it, uh, and dragon dies. He gets back to Dragonstone with it. Uh, his younger brother ends up going across the sea. Um, well, then, you know, when he becomes the king, um, it, it is, you know, it's during that time that the rest of the dragons do die out. But if you go back into um, A World of Ice and Fire, follow it a little long, he was a fairly decent king. You know, he was he was very melancholy, depressed person for most of his life, which you could understand after all of this. Uh, but he was he was pretty uh, you know he was pretty decent and his brother the second Viserys who followed him was actually one of the best of um, of the Targaryen kings in terms of getting a lot done and and being pretty efficient and everything. So I just uh, you know kind of wanted to mention because they are brought up in here you know that kind of the outcome of this that uh, and and it ends up that uh, you know with him ruling that uh, it's Rhaenerys' line rather than the green line. It's the black line that does continue on with the Targaryens. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, I didn't realize all of the Hightower connections with the throne at this part of history. It will be my final point, I guess. Um, we'll go around the room one more time for um, each person. If you have one more point, Bubba, go ahead. Oh no! I guess I. The, it now jumps to me how you're talking about the high towers and how their position in this thing feels a bit, you know, I want to say a bit uh, like the Lannister position at the start of the Game of Thrones, in that they are kind of married to the crown, and then they're using that connection to the crown to kind of, dare I say it, like weeds grow in and infect and and take charge in the high towers at least in my opinion, really are, they aren't explored very much, at least so far in the main series of books. And so like you, Matt, I, I did find that a bit fascinating to see this very powerful family. How is this family actually answering to the Tyrells, the Tyrell family in the reach? It seems weird that the high towers could be so powerful. And yet technically uh, they're there in the section of the reach where they have to answer to the Tyrells. So, yeah, I, I found it a bit interesting, too. And sure enough, as I keep saying, I was on Team Green, so I was generally rooting for them as well. <laughs> Excuse me, guys. Uh, Susan, a final point from you? Uh, sure. I guess uh, Bubba was talking about medals uh, that he really enjoyed her. And I would just also add that an additional thing that people can, uh, if they want to know more about what happened to her, that there are some to that in the world of ice and fire as well if you go into reading the section about the veil 
that uh, that that may be where she ended up, and uh, there's some interesting things associated with that. Hmm. Very interesting. Very cool. Um, that's going to be it, guys. I want to do uh, just a quick go around. Uh, obviously, we've expressed how this story is is differently told than what we're used to from George. Um, if George were to do more of these, would you read them? Yes, uh, I would. But, yes, I would because I enjoy learning more about the backstory. The more I learn about the different characters that make up the history, the more the world kind of feels real to me. And, and like I say, when they mention things in the main story that relate to the history of the world, when you first read those things and you don't have any reference to them, they don't really mean anything. But now they take on much deeper meaning. So to me, it really makes the other things more enjoyable and interesting to read. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Bubba, how about you? If George were to write and release more uh, stories in history like this, I'm pretty sure I would start walking in traffic. Please, George, no. I mean, just finish finish the first two books. After that, hey, maybe sure I'd be down. Uh, but boy, please, please no. Okay. Yeah. And as, yeah. as for me, I got to have the information, but um, I don't know that I would be as excited to read them as I would The Winds of Winter, for sure. Yeah, and I would say I I haven't read The Rogue Prince. I could have, if I had enjoyed this more, maybe I might have been pulled to go read The Rogue Prince, but I haven't read it. Oh, well, we'll be covering it sometime in the future, Bubba. You can read it with us then. I'll <laughs> do it if I get a lot of followers on at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M, at Fit and Trim on Twitter, certainly. And also, I, I always say I hope our listeners enjoyed it, and I hope I'm the only one who was slightly down on this never-ending Wikipedia entry. <laughs> <laughs> and and I want to add too that I certainly want the Winds of Winter to come out before any anything else as well. So you know, very good. All right, guys. Well, thanks again so much for joining me. I really feel uh, like we kind of parsed this out. Just almost. I mean, I know that there are probably a lot of points that we could have all, all also brought up, but I feel like you know, an hour thirty plus discussion of it is more than enough. So. Let me turn to you first, Susan, and say thanks again for joining me. You've been with me through all of these A Song of Ice and Fire things. We'll be doing the Grand Northern Conspiracy sometime in the future when I get back from uh, when I get back from touring, and I'm looking forward to that. How can people talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire if they want to? Sure. The easiest way to reach me is uh, on Twitter at Black Eyed Lily, and uh, I am always very happy to come on and talk about this stuff. I look forward to, to being part of these podcasts and uh, I look forward to George getting that sixth book out. I know we are all waiting for that every day. I, I hope that, that there's going to be an announcement and and I'm waiting to see it. <laughs> and every day we're disappointed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Bubba, of course, uh, you can't possibly disappoint as many people as George R. R. Martin does because you're delivering, like, you're working really hard delivering content on at least two different shows right now per week. So uh, how can people 
find the Double P Podcast Network and what's going on there. And uh, be sure to say your Twitter name at least two or three times. All right. Sure. So just in case we have any new listeners to Podcast Winterfell, sure enough, I was a huge fan of Podcast Winterfell. I used to call in to my favorite podcast host, a guy I like to call Double M, Matt Murdock. And he inspired me to kind of, to be honest, spin off a podcast from the podcast Winterfell entitled The Joffrey Podcast. And you can find that on iTunes and other podcast places. And since then, uh, I've start, we've started doing shows about uh, recap shows and discussion shows about such things as the TV show The Strain, uh, the TV show Ash versus Evil Dead. We're starting up another one in the next couple of weeks about the classic TV show Twin Peaks, which is coming back with new episodes next season. We do all sorts of podcasts. I no longer have a life, and I always thank Double M, dear Lord, please. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you can find out about all the sh- podcasts that I do. At uh, the Facebook page, just go to facebook.com slash double P podcast. That's the word double, the single letter P, and the word podcast, plural, facebook.com slash double P podcast. And uh, once again, it'd be great uh, if you could download and check out any of my other shows to see that I actually do like some things. <laughs> Recently, uh, when I was a wonderful, Matt was kind enough to have me a, on a guest on his great podcast, the uh, Sorkin cast. I was discussing a Sorkin show that I wasn't that fond of, even though previously I discussed stuff I loved, like Aaron Sorkin's The Social Network. So anyway, you can go to Twitter and see if I've scared away enough Twitter followers so I'm not over 800, at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you, Bubba. Follow Bubba to 1,000. If you have any feedback for the podcast, you can find me via the way Axel Foley's going to tell you. Or you can just uh, follow at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. See you later. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.